Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. Paul Beach will be back next week. In this episode, Jill talks about the types of texture in wine, and we taste two very different wines, so she can demonstrate that. And I talk about three types of musical texture, and we hear music from the Baroque era with Domenico Scarlatti, and then we hear from 20th century composers Bela Bartok, Dmitry Shostakovich, and more. You can check out patreon.com slash scoresandpours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Hi, Jill Mott. Good day, Emily Reese. And a happy birthday to you, as you wished me a happy birthday on a podcast we recorded. Why, thank you very much. Which was actually on my birthday, but uh, this is not technically on your birthday. It's quite okay. I just ate a piece of carrot cake that was as large as... Almost a bottle of wine. I'm, I'm trying to lower my uh, apparent sugar rush that I'm on right now. So if I sound like I'm, I've taken a sedative, it's because I'm compensating. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, speaking of delicious cake, which had a delightful texture, we're going to talk about texture today. Because she was going to actually do applesauce instead of vegetable oil and decided to not I did, yeah. go that route. And the texture was beautifully moist, dense. It was. Texturally, it? it was great. It really was good. <laughs> Which is a great segue into today. I love yes, it, ER. I nice know. work. Nice work. <laughs> Thanks. So today we're going to talk about texture in wine and texture in music. I think I'm going to have a much easier time in, in conveyance, thankfully. That's so funny because for me, I'm like, well, this is a piece of cake. Speaking of. Whoa. <laughs> no pun intended. ER, Seriously no pun not. intended. Um, well, so let's get to it. So with wine, textural is, of course, mostly it adheres to the palate. Like once you put the wine in your mouth, I mean, you could try to metaphorically talk about texture in the aromatics slash the nose of a wine, but I think you'd be stretching. Do you? I do. Yeah. Uh, in music, texture just talks about how many layers you hear or how many voices, as it were, that you're hearing and what their responsibility is as a voice. Someone asked me like about texture in music. I would also speak to like the chunkiness to it or I'd talk about the smooth quality of whether it's rhythm or those specific layers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I guess that speaks to when you said how many layers and what they're doing. Yeah. I guess that's the what they're doing. Well, do they have a melodic role or more of a harmonic role? And if it's a harmonic role, what kind of harmonic role? So, yeah, they're basically, I mean, gen, like in, the, in its simplest form, there are three types of texture that you hear the most often. And then there's a couple others too. But I can't wait to just, dig into yeah, them. Yeah. With one, you, when we speak with a, to texture, I think there are, in my opinion, there are two ways it can be spoken about. You can either talk about the palate and the different parts of the palate, decipher those and discern, you know, your professional or personal opinion, and then you could conjoin all of those for what is the texture of the wine. Hmm. But you could also speak purely to mouthfeel, like is this round, is it smooth, is it rich and full is it chiseled but then chiseled what does that mean like i know what that means in my head but what are in that chiseled sometimes 
can have to do with tannin and acidity, which we'll talk about, but other times it can just have to do with how the fruit profile is being discerned by your palate. So I think it's, I think it's the two combined makes for texture, but mm. I can see where the argument lies for it's the, the sum of all the parts yeah. being the texture. And then the other argument that it's like actually just how the wine kind of passes through your mouth and it's overall perception. Because if you gave me a, a sip of wine and you say, describe this texture, Emily, I would say it's wet. That's what I think of when I think of texture. Okay, so that's I'm just fair, like, I don't that's know. Or I, also it's spicy yeah, for those of you who have. I hate that. I know. <laughs> you, you get so annoyed when people say spicy because spicy could mean so many different things or even peppery can mean a thousand different things. Are we talking about? Are we talking about black pepper? Are we talking about green pepper? Are we yeah. just talking about how it feels? Yeah, you're right. But to so, not go off on a tangent. Yeah, yeah. But I do. I'm just so um, interested to learn more about how you can start building that vocabulary of texture with wine. You know. Well, and with music. Well, sure. Do you want to start with music or wine? Yeah. No. Let's start with. Uh, let's t- start with some music. There are basically three big types of uh, texture that we talk about. Um, there's monophonic music, there's homophonic music, and there's polyphonic music. Monophonic being the easiest to music describe. Music or texture? Texture, okay. yeah, but it's in music. Okay. Yeah. So if you're hearing something monophonic, you're hearing a single voice singing a single line. You might even hear a thousand voices singing that one line, but nope, everybody's singing in unison. It's just one one thing happening. Uh, there's no bass. There's no So that's monophonic nothing. texture. Monophonic texture. Okay. Yeah. Homophonic texture. Uh, think about singing a hymn in church um, where there's one person with the melody or there's one voice. Sopranos have the melody and everybody else is accompanying and pretty much everybody's moving together in some way, shape, or form. It doesn't have to be homophonic rhythmically as well, but uh, but you know it's basically think think also about like a symphony in the classical era where there's a the first violins are playing the melody and everybody else is accompanying them okay. along along the way. Okay, so that's homophonic music, uh, and then polyphonic music is, in my opinion, the most fun of them all. <laughs> Because that's when all the voices are like chiming in and doing cool shit together. So it's like they're either working together rapidly in in counterpoint, like um, like you would hear in the Baroque era. Uh, maybe they're imitating each other. Um, 
maybe they're um, one will play something and the other will play something that's different. And, you, you know, I mean, there's just a lot going on, a lot going on. Busy, busy. Um, and do you mind divulging before we jump over to wine? Which composers or what, you know, are you going to focus on? The big fun one that we're going to listen to a little bit later uh, comes from the Hungarian composer Béla Bartók, and nice. it's his wonderful, amazing concerto for orchestra. So we're going to listen to some of that. I'm fist pumping. Yes, she's fist pumping. Um, uh, not so much for you to describe to me the the texture in terms of layers and such, although we certainly can work on some of that together. Um, but also we'll talk about the other aspects of texture, meaning uh, are we going slow or fast? I mean, what are you hearing? Yeah. What do you hear? What instruments are you hearing? How high is it going? How low is it going? Who else are we going to hear? Um, we're going to hear some Domenico Scarlatti. Okay. Uh Born in Naples, considered an Italian composer, but Spain was ruling then, and he worked for Spain and Portugal most of his life. Uh, and then uh, we're going to hear a hymn by uh, American composer William Billings. So, oh, great. Yeah, that's pretty—I mean, we probably will hear some other things, too. I, I actually—yeah, um, yeah. That's, that's where I'm going to end there. <laughs> we are going to pour the first wine— Excellent. Talk about some texture in wine. And we'll focus on how the palate works. Um, I know a lot of a lot of wine folk will know um, the majority of what we're talking about here, but I'd like to, you know, for people that like to drink wine and they, you know, use words like spicy or they use words like full or rich, but don't necessarily know what they mean, we'll go through that because that all has to do with sort of the greater aspects of what's happening in your mouth, which all adds to texture. Um, and I brought two examples of wine that could not be any different um, from each other. So one is a Chardonnay from Arroyo Grande, a really uh, cool cool wine um, in, in, in a world where a lot of people that right now like hate Chardonnay, love Chardonnay. <laughs> this is a really beautiful example of a Chardonnay that's got some oak on it, so um, that'll be fun to talk about. And then I brought a white wine with a ton of skin contact, which so it'll drink a lot like a red meets a rosé, um, but yet it's white and refreshing and deep. So we'll start with that one, the latter, because okay. I think it'll show... It'll show how creamy, et cetera, the second wine actually is. So um, so this is a wine from Spain. The grape is called Aiden, and it's got quite a lot of skin contact, upwards of uh, between 100 and 300 days. Um, yes. And this is a wine that um, we're going to really not look at color right now, and we're really not going to talk about the nose because we'll just be here a lot longer. <laughs> so um, cheers to scores and pours. Scores and pours. And tell me, when you taste it, Emily, tell me what you, besides wet, 
<laughs> what yeah. what comes about to your palate? Okay. Acid. <laughs> Super acidic. <laughs> yep. Very acidic. No doubt. This is from a parcel that's got a lot of alkaline soils. Mm -hmm. um, there's wow. a lot of calcareous. There's clay, but there's a high quantity of chalk here. Meaty. And that alkalinity can can basically flip-flop and you have really high acidity. So in a in a final wine, you said meaty? Yeah, like okay. a, like steak. Love it. <gasps> Love it. So as she's tasting, if anything comes up, let me know. I mean, you could just tell it's been on the skins forever. So we'll start talking about the palate. So I encourage anybody who's tasting wine for any sort of, you know, you're trying to discern what you like or don't like about a wine, what foods it'll go with, but especially speaking to the mouthfeel and the texture, you got to kind of move it around in your mouth. So um, I'm going to do a, a lot of sommeliers and, and wine folk will do this. <laughs> yeah. Aerating, making a lot of noise. You don't need to do that. You know, it's just going to end up, sometimes it goes the wrong tube. You sound really, you know, ridiculous at <laughs> tastings and parties and whatever. So just move the wine just for a small amount of time around the gums and around your tongue and, and such, maybe just a few seconds before you spit or swallow. And the reason why you don't want to keep it in your mouth, I actually saw one person making the previous sound I just made for like 45 seconds. And I thought... <laughs> All that's happening is the proteins in your mouth are binding with that wine, and you're just going to have the biggest loogie coming out of your mouth. <laughs> so there's no need to do that. So just give it a little, you know, a few times around the mouth and swallow or spit. And then I like people to first focus on, like, the tannins of a wine. So, and tannins are what makes your gums and kind of your mouth dry out, and that comes from either skin contact, if there's any CO2 in the wine, like like a sparkling wine, um, it can have to do with, in this case, this wine has been in um, old in chestnut casks. So you have not only skin contact, but you have the chestnut, which gives it tannin. Um, and I like to kind of find a, a way to, after tasting, you know, thousands of wines, you have a meter, like is it low, medium, or high tannin? And sometimes that gets boring. Jules Chauvet, a master taster, would say it's not about being poetic. But I think sometimes, in, you, yes, you need that low, medium, high factor, but then what does it remind me of? And you said meaty. Like, are they meaty tannins? Or are they really woody? Like, what type of tannins are they? So give it a little... Give it a little um, what type of tannin? Okay. Like, give it, give it a level, Emily. Like, taste it and say, is it, is it really low tannin, middle tannin? Or really high tannin. And keep in mind, we're comparing this to a lot of other wines out there, right? So, Oh. I would say low to medium. And I'd say she's absolutely right. Like if yes. you were, if you were um, thinking of like a Cabernet that's got a lot of extraction and a lot of tannin, you know, that might, that would be really like ripping our gums apart right now. And this definitely has it. Like it's, it clings there, but it's a... It's not the most aggressive part of the profile. Right. Certainly. And that tannin can help you decipher, like, is it meant to be paired with food? Like, do you want, you probably want some protein, something that's going to make you chew mm -hmm. so that this tannin has somewhere to go, you know, because a really tannic wine sometimes wants, or a tannic wine sometimes wants some food. Mm -hmm. What about the acidity? Like, so if, when you're tasting for acidity, you want the, the to make sure that the wine kind of caresses, of course, your whole mouth, but you're really fixating on 
the sides of your tongue and how much does the wine make you salivate? Lots. So yeah, what do you, what would you say? Hi. I would say hi for this one because, I mean, really, like the first drink I took, my jaws just did the Sour Patch Kid thing, you know. And then we have to say, but is it the same on the third sip? Because sometimes the first sip. Oh, fair enough. I would say it's. Oh, then medium probably. I, I would actually go with your first assumption. Like it's it's kind of medium plus in the mm-hmm, flirting mm-hmm. with high. It And it reminds me of like a very, something that's really um, close in my mind to some other type of acid. And it reminds me of like orange juice, mm-hmm. like how acidic, mm-hmm. or, when people say I can't drink orange juice in the morning because of how acidic it is. Yeah. Granted, a lot of wines are really acidic, but yeah. this wine is like citrusy orange juice. Yeah. High acid yeah. or medium plus acid. Yeah. What about, um, so these are all the things that we're going to couple together to talk about the texture. Okay. Um, how does it weigh on your palate? Is it heavy? Is it light? Is it medium bodied? What does that mean? Like when you float it around and let it sit on your tongue for a second, mm-hmm. does it feel in the end like it's a really heavy wine? Is it really high in alcohol or is it oh. lighter? Or is, it, is that what you mean, alcohol content? Well, that ends up transferring oh. to mean that, yes. but I don't think I'd call it heavy. Yeah, and the acid will shuffle our perception, right? Because when something's really high acid, sometimes it makes us think it's lighter than it is. Okay. Um, to me, this is a medium-bodied wine. It definitely has some weight, but it's not a full-on yeah. heavy wine. Yeah. Um, and before we talk about the finish, and granted, the we could talk about the like retro nasal. It's called like when you sip wine. You know, because we have our nasal passage, that's what's what allows us to like taste really er- like volatile aromatic yeah. receptors, right? So, or perceptions. So, um, without talking about different types of, say, citrus or passion fruit or oak, chestnut or oak or anything, mm-hmm. how um, how does this feel on your mouth? Does it feel sharp? Does it feel like I said chiseled? Does it and, and this actually really helps if you plug your nose and taste it because then you don't have any of those aromatic mm-hmm. uh, compounds that are muffling the actual tactile presence in our mouth. It's really sharp. I'm saying this with my nose plugged. Yes, you are. It's really like sharp to me. Aggressive. I think that's fair. Are you getting anything different or opposite? No. The last thing I usually taste for is the finish. Like, how long am I available? Does my palate feel the tannin, the acid? Yes, the aromatic compounds are always part of the finish, but, like, how long does this last? A while. It does. I'd say it's longer than short, but shorter (laughs) than long. So maybe a medium finish that's pretty aggressive. So this is just a medium kind of wine. A medium, but very, like, loud. Yeah. You know, it's got like a lot of when we, once yeah. we start considering, that's why sometimes just texture isn't enough because right. all the aromatic compounds mean so much more. And I'll be curious to hear if there's a parallel in music, but we can't simply just talk about a texture and have that be what the wine's about. Cause of course it's all about the minerals and the fruit and all the other volatile or non-volatile components that happen with wine. But I would say if you were looking at a sheet with notes the palate profile, the profile of the palate, the texture would be really boring if we were saying medium tannin, high acid, 
Yeah. Medium weight, medium finish. But in the end, when we start talking about, oh, it's sharp, oh, it tastes like orange juice, you said it's... Um, meaty. You said it's really meaty. Like that makes me... Then, then it starts to get a whole... There's a whole lot of other things that add to its final um, perception or judgment as opposed to just talking about texture. I think the texture of this wine is insane. I think it's really, in a beautiful way, humble and obtuse... Like it's not, um, it's not a refined wine by any sense. Like I'm not drinking it and going, oh, it's so smooth and so this and <laughs> yeah. all these things, which is really, um, which is really fun. Uh, from the heart of La Mancha in central Spain, heading south. Love it. So we just have a little Gregorian chant here to describe monophonic texture, and you can hear there's several fellows singing. They're all singing in unison. Nobody's droning on the bottom. Nobody's singing any other note than anybody else. Everybody's doing the same thing. Monophonic music, monophonic texture. And so if they were in it, does anybody ever speak to the fact that they're, to me there's nothing uh, sharp slash staccato, you know, they're just very, it's very melodic and very smooth. Mm -hmm. Is that could we also speak to that in texture, or is that something else in music? Yeah, no, you can talk about that too. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. As part of the monophonic texture here, you could yes. Say. Okay. So, what else are you hearing then? You could say I'm hearing men's voices, so that kind of gives you an idea of the range that you're hearing. You know, it's not going very high, mm -hmm. right? Because there's no soprano or alto voice there. It's just all basically tenors, baritone kind of thing going on. There's no prince here. No prince. Okay. No Mariah Carey. Just, uh, just fellas singing to God. Beautiful. So what would be uh, an example of uh, homophonic texture then? Well, best part is we don't even have to leave the church for that. <laughs> <laughs> William Billings, American composer, incredibly influential American composer. He wrote just hundreds of hymns, uh, and a lot of people don't know his name. But, you know, he's a thing. So here's a hymn by... William Billings to demonstrate a homophonic texture. So what you'll hear is um, you're going to hear more than one part. You'll probably hear four parts, uh, you know, in terms of a choir. So high female voices, lower female voices, higher male voices, low male voices, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. Uh, and the sopranos are going to be singing the melody and everybody else is just kind of supporting what they're doing. So this would be a homophonic texture. When I think of polyphony singing, which I know is different, yes, I think of the fact that not only are they all singing the same, like, you know, they're on the same rhythm, they're singing this, obviously the same, in this case, the same words. Um, 
does it also have to do with how many notes they are apart? Because it sounds like they're all very, there's doesn't sound like there's a lot of dissonance here. Does When we think of polyphonic texture, not to skip ahead, yeah. but is that one way to decipher, does polyphonic texture always include some, can it include dissonance where homophonic cannot? No. Okay. Good question, though. Yeah, the, in polyphonic music, there can be a lot of chromaticism, but you can hear that in homophonic music as well. So, yeah, there can chromaticism be dissonance. Meaning, okay. Yeah, there can be dissonance in both. Chromaticism basically means you're adding a bunch of notes that don't quote-unquote belong in the scale in the first yeah. place. Okay. And which tends to create dissonance. Yeah. Uh, so they, yeah. So that can exist in homophonic texture. For sure, yeah. So this is where maybe I disagree with, and not disagree, but... I think that, you know, the way I just talked about texture is like the sommelier way to talk about like deciphering the palate, right? Medium, mm -hmm. low, high acid, medium, low, high tannin, yeah. medium, low, high body, you know, whatever. And that's always for ourself to create sensory memory, to lock things into our minds so we don't forget things. And of course, we're flowering them with things that also make them reside in our hopefully memory banks for a long time to come. It's a scholastic way of looking at wine, right? That you can, a lot of people can try to have the same speak. Mm -hmm. Yet at the same time, there's something incredibly boring about it. There's something that is seemingly um, unimaginative about it as well. And so I'd like to challenge, Not I don't know who I'm challenging. Is it the music community? Is it the convention of texture to say like, okay, by having these three boxes, we can get to a place. But yeah. when I said, then you said, well, what do you hear? So we've we've established it's this texture. Mm -hmm. Now what do you hear? Mm -hmm. To me, I feel like we're limiting it by saying there are only three textures because I feel like there should be... Well, there are more than three. Well, no, but I'm saying like within, say, the um, monophonic. I oh. feel like smooth, i.e., oh. is like a texture in and of itself, right? Mm -hmm. And then you've got yeah. like staccato or something like that could be poignant or you've got like all these these ways that we can flesh out texture mm -hmm. without it just being like a, a subtext to the greater texture. You know, it's like these are our three textures and then we can put our, all our little bullet points of what we think about it. Mm -hmm. I don't know, just something I... My very uneducated yeah. musical mind is... Oh, not at all. I mean, you're still going to have to t describe at some point how many voices you're hearing and what they're all doing. And once you describe that and we establish what the texture is, then we can talk all about how high and low it's going, how fast and slow it's going, how smooth or staccato it is, how all of those things. But we have to know, before we go anywhere, really, how many voices are playing and what their role is. And voices can be instruments or people, right? Mm -hmm. um, so are we hearing two trumpets, four bassoons, and an organ? Or are we hearing four-part harmony? Are we hearing eight-part harmony? Are we hearing but I know, think polyphonic it's, it's, texture? How I hear it is when we, if I think of Rameau, and I think mm -hmm. of Rameau playing the harpsichord or someone replicating Rameau's harpsichord music, that it's technically wrong to say, oh my gosh, it's such bouncy texture. Like that's wrong. Yeah, as I'm here, and and in my mind, it's sort of like, well, why is that wrong? Like it's bouncing around, <laughs> and or is that just like audibly? You know what I mean? That's, yeah, I'm I'm just challenging that in terms of because I know that nowadays most people in the natural wine world that don't have a formal 
sommelier background, don't speak about wine exactly how I'm speaking about sure. it here. I'm speaking about it here from a very scholastic, very studied point of view, even though I don't really talk about wine like this so much anymore. I do from time to time or if I want to try to categorize something, but it ends up becoming almost obsolete. You know, I'm almost like if I force that issue, I'm sort of forcing my vocabulary into, you know, like this mundane place, yeah. which is interesting. Well, to talk and I about. think that as a listener, I do that too. And I think you probably do as a listener also. Like, I mean, if you, if I listen to something, you know, after the fact, if you were to ask me what, you know, was that homophonic or polyphonic or what was it? I'd, I'd probably be like, oh, I didn't even thought of that. It was this. Mm -hmm. But I would know mm -hmm. how to answer that question. Yeah. And that's a really good point to speak to kind of the wine world today when people are, you know, very into um, certain types of wine. And, and I, I'll just speak about natural wine from experience that how, um, you know, you don't need a formal sommelier training to be to know a lot about natural wine and enjoy it and sell it and all the, all those things. But it helps to have a background that can speak to what you just said, those certain questions, so you can know how to arrive at the answer with justification. Because I think the the classic teaching goes a long way um, to then be able to go out and swim your way through the greater natural wine world, modern music world, whatever it may be. This second wine I brought is from a friend out in California who makes a very delicious, verging on like a classic Chardonnay uh, before Chardonnay got slutty. I'll just <laughs> be very candid in saying that. Before it got tricked out on new oak and things to make it smooth and with just a little hint of residual sugar and putting lots of junk in the wine because there's nothing in this other than juice and a little sulfur. So this is from a vineyard that lies quite close to the sea within six to seven miles. Um, it's from a single plot in Arroyo Grande where, you know, I think he's got less than a hectare, or excuse me, less than an acre of fruit. Um, and he puts it in a whole cluster press, presses it into older oak. There's a small percentage that's newer oak. Um, but I brought this because of what oak can contribute to the palate, like the chestnut, but also like a, a creamy factor. We'll talk about malolactic fermentation slash conversion in a moment. Um, but let me fill Miss Reese's glass with a splash. She says fill. She doesn't mean that. A mere eight ounces. No, just kidding. <laughs> so <laughs> we're like, we wish. No, just yeah. kidding. So um, I won't, I won't, Go right into it. Yeah. Taste and tell me what you think. Cheers. Cheers. First of all, is it really, really oaky on the nose? Because to me, it's not. Like, it, it could be way It smells oakier. more like vanilla to me. Maybe vanilla cake. Now that we're talking about cake. No, it just doesn't smell that so quote-unquote sweet, even though no. things can't smell sweet. Okay, go ahead. Wow. So, <laughs> one thing I forgot to mention, tip of the tongue is where we register sweetness and dry in all levels in between. So when people say, 
wow, that's sweet. And I say, is it really? Or is it just fruity? If you think something's sweet, but it's bottled in a 750, your chances are it's probably dry. <laughs> so plug your nose, stick at the tip of your tongue where your sugar receptors are, into your wine. You'll look ridiculous, but you'll realize that there's most of the time not actual residual sugar residing in your wine. So this is a dry wine. Um, when you went, whoa, what what hit you? The oaky part. Okay, mm. fair enough. Do you think um, when you swish it around your gums and such, do you think it's where are the tannins and why? I don't think it's very tannic. Not compared to the last one. If we called that low to medium, I'd call this low, to be honest. Like low minus, right? This is where the low minus, if you're reading, if, yeah. I'm, if I'm grading some, some future aspiring sommeliers, low minus would be where I'm going here because it's only because of oak and not a lot of new oak. If this had 100% new oak yeah, where that hasn't been rinsed and it's just leaching tannin into your wine, we'd probably some be somewhere in the medium-ish plus category. Okay. But because it has hardly any new wood, this has been used before. So those tannins, of course, get into the wine, mm-hmm. but not, not a, a, a lot. What do you think about how do they feel? Do they feel... This is this has got some chestnut wine number one, mm-hmm. but it's old chestnut. So here we have s- skins are contributing a lot to the tannin. Right. Do you notice how this feels? Granted, the level's different, but how it feels different? Like it feels, quote unquote, woodier. Yeah. Yeah. Like stavier, even though it's yeah. not too oaky. What about yeah. how much it makes your mouth water? Very little. Compared to the other one, right? So much littler. yeah like hardly at all i would say yeah this is to me it's got about medium medium minus acidity yeah like this is now a four-year-old chardonnay wow which that's great you know it's still Mm -hmm. refreshing Mm -hmm. is it screaming like the the other one no but it's i think it's got a moderate amount of acidity enough to keep the palate fresh Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. because with oak sometimes you want to keep the palate you know, life as life as you can. Yeah, we're going to get to malolactic fermentation okay. slash conversion. I call it conversion because technically it's not a fermentation. It's not yeast driven. It's bacteria driven. So to me, it's converting a malic green apple like acid and it's converting it to a lactic acid. So it's not fermenting it. So when you feel this on the palate. Can you feel the slightest amount? I don't think this has gone through a complete malolactic, but I do think there has been a small amount, a very small amount. Do you feel how it's just ever so slightly like creamy? Yeah. Just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. This has gone through that too, but the high acidity, the wine number one has masked that. Okay. The crazy amount of Acidity, yeah, the tannin, the chestnut, kind of. Mm-hmm. But the fact that this doesn't have that wine number two doesn't have all yeah. that those bells and whistles. It's sort of a little bit more kind of comprised, fits yeah. in a box, rounder, a little bit rounder. Yep. Mm-hmm. So um, it's got a little Not bit of that lactic acid. Not in terms of being well rounded. I don't mean it like that. Even yeah, yeah. Cr- correct. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. Uh, how does it? How does it? Uh, what's the weight of it? Do you think? Again, not heavy. Yeah, I think it's pretty light. similar. Yeah. Like medium, medium-ish. It's not mm-hmm. like as light as, say, the, some rosés we've had yeah. on the show. It's not as light as, I know there's a Pinot Gris from Oregon you really like that you get on occasion. Yeah. Not that light, but mm-hmm. it's 
I'd say medium-ish, right? How does it finish for you? Does it finish long? Does it finish tannic? Does it finish fr- like My fruity? My teeth are hot, and it goes away sort of much faster than the other wine one does, but I would say it's a fruity finish. Love it. Okay, so well, <laughs> she's like, mm. it is. It is a, definitely a fruitier finish than the last wine that was kind of like all over the place, and yeah. you can tell that wine one is like it's crazy farmer natural, and then you've got wine number two that is verging on natural. It's on the natural spectrum. There might be a little <laughs> bit more sulfur added um, than you know, a natural winemaker would like to call themselves. At the same time, it's like a really well put together Chardonnay. Not too oaky, not too round. That's um, really well made, yeah. I think. So I like we'll, it. We'll talk about the commingling of texture in a moment. What about uh, polyphonic texture? Let's listen to some raised. polyphony, man. So we're going to listen to some uh, Domenico Scarlatti. And I actually just decided to listen to him today <laughs> because I um, was reading an article in this online classical music magazine called Van. And it might be Vaughn. I, I call it Van. Um, but it, it had this link to a YouTube video where someone took all 555 of Domenico Scarlatti's keyboard sonatas and put them all together. And you can listen to them all at once. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Because, <laughs> of course, YouTube, right? And I was like, well, that's pretty badass. And, you know, it does end with one because there's one that's longer than all the others, which is funny. Uh, but in any event, Scarlatti was born the same year as Johann Sebastian Bach, which is uh, 1685, also the same year as George Friedrich Handel, 1685, a very popular year for famous Baroque composers to be born. And Scarlatti lived until 1757, so about seven years longer than Bach. And uh, like I said, Scarlatti was from Naples, even though that was ruled by Spain. So I wonder if they think of him as a Spanish composer. Probably not. We call him an Italian composer, and I, that's always how I've known him. Um, and I just chose one. He just <laughs> 555 of these keyboard sonatas. Most of them are pretty short, so just a handful of minutes, right? We're not talking about even a 15-minute piece that he wrote 555 of. We're talking about like four minutes here and there. You know what I mean? They can be really short. So let's listen to a little bit of this. Uh, this is his keyboard sonata in A major. Okay. And the catalog number, or the K number, is uh, 113. Cheers to that, Emily Reese. Cheers to that. Wow, that is buttery. Like the like, kind of that taste of almost of ghee, you know. Of like I've never a, had ghee, like of a. But I would say it's like it's almost like that. What's that frosting that they'll pour over a cake that kind of hardens into a shell? Fondant. Sure. Okay. That kind of buttery. Is fondant really that? But do you mean buttercream? No idea. Maybe buttercream. Sure, perhaps. Perhaps. So what? What did you take away from the textural conversation today? Because we could talk about a lot of these fruit mm-hmm. esters. Yeah. 
and go, this could be a whole other episode talking about just the difference in these fruit esters, you know, and what yeah. they're, how they're being part of the entire wine. But when we talk about texture, it really is like tactile. And it's so interesting too, when people write notes on a wine and how it feels in their mouth, doing it entirely with their nose plugged. Granted, they have to kind of unplug oh. to write their notes. Sure, but sure. But like, you know, you're to, to feel what it actually, what a wine feels like without being able to assess it with all the aromatics. Granted, that never happens in the enjoyment of wine. Yeah. So why should we do it that way? Yeah. Because it's fun. <laughs> but it really does show how kind of separated it really, texture can be. Yeah. But how it really requires that aromatic complexity to be, or simplicity to be part of the final package of wine. I don't mm-hmm. know. What did you think mm-hmm. about the, the two? I think um, they're. I mean, they're both delicious. Obviously, uh, the more Chardonnay I drink, the less I like Chardonnay. <laughs> okay, all <laughs> Which right. Which is funny. That's fair. Uh, because and you I mean love this one included, white right? Wine. Yeah, because I just don't like that. Um, the kind of butterness. I don't like the butteriness in it. Okay, so can and I revert to a con- Hold on, I'm going to yeah, interrupt for the please. conversations we've had in the past. Yeah. Have you had Chardonnay that isn't oaked? And that well, isn't, I think we doesn't have, have the malactic have. conversion. Yeah. Yeah, I think I have, and therefore I've liked. But anytime it's like creamy, oaky, buttery, I don't like it. Okay. So That's I'm fair. sure there's lots of Chardonnay that I do like, but I've learned that, you know, when it's like that, I don't really want it. Okay, cheers to that. <laughs> Got to know what you like and what you don't like. Um, I think um, I'm starting to get a really good feel on obviously like tannin and acidity, even dry and fruity, but uh, maybe less so that. But I get in trouble when I'm trying to think about, you know, well, what does it taste like? Because I don't feel like I've had that wide of a food experience. I mean, I have and I haven't, you know. I don't feel like it's been wide enough for me. I'm, I don't feel confident when I'm describing wine that way. And I also do have trouble like with heavy, well, that one I'm better at too. I don't know. It's just, it's fun though to break it down like that and think about what I'm tasting as, you know, just like, what are you hearing? Well, mm-hmm. what am I tasting? Uh, yeah. Well, I think the the food conversation that you mentioned is 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 especially interesting to now and relating to now because I've never lived at a time where people have associated more with, and and we're at the cusp of changing, I feel like, like when you're smelling and tasting wine, adjectives that don't relate to the wine at all. Like we, we've used some today, buttercream, fondant, like mm-hmm. we use associations so that we can understand it. Right. Because wine is so, in a lot of ways, elusive, we have to put Every, and like I said, ghee, and you're like, well, I've never had ghee. And then I'm, yeah. I try to sift through, and I'm like, okay, what do I know that Emily's had that I've had so that we can both <laughs> get there, right? Yeah. And in yeah. the end, it has nothing to do with this, which is right. in, super interesting. Yeah. And I think people are just at the at starting to talk about like how, how wines make them feel. Mm-hmm. And if they're like, oh, I really don't like that because it's too – and they may not use acidic, but they may be like, oh, I don't like orange juice – and so I don't like this. 
And granted, they're saying they're saying they don't like orange juice, but I know it's not the orange juice that they don't like. It's like how that acid sometimes makes people feel in the morning or something. You know, yeah. like we're at a crucial crossroads right now with wine vocabulary and lexicon that I think textural we can as much as today we were using low, medium, and high to get somewhere. It'll be interesting where we're at in 10 years to talk about texture, you know. Yeah. Um, someone came into the wine shop I worked at the other day and they were like, wow, it, I had this wine and I'd recommended it to her. So I could see why she said that, but it was fascinating. She's like, God, it, and it kind of tasted like, I don't know, the only thing I can think of is like, it felt like a cloud on my mouth. And I was <laughs> like, well, I'm pretty sure you have never had a cloud on your mouth. But I was like, I, I knew what she meant. Yeah. So, and she used that as her texture. Like that was, I wanted to hug her, you know? <laughs> so um, texture slash mouthfeel is, you know, synonymous in wine. And it's fun to break it down in a scholastic or, you know, more constructive way. But it's also um, as much as Jules Chauvet, the incredible French taster of the mid-1900s would argue with me. It also I think we can get somewhere by being poetic as lot as long as we're not being flowery for flowery's sake. You know? Yeah, yeah. So definitely. Shall we Bartok? Okay, so this was his Bartok's last completed work, finished the year he died, which was 1945. Uh, here in the U.S., he moved here in 1940 because of World War II. He was from Hungary, didn't want to be there, so he came here in 1940. He was sick, he had leukemia, he was dying, and he didn't have very much money. So some of his friends asked the conductor of the Boston Symphony to commission a piece from him. They, uh, that guy's name, Sergei Kusevitsky, commissioned Bartok to write this. And uh, it premiered before Bartok died, and everybody loved it. And it's a wonderful piece. Why did you choose this? Um, because textures are really fun with Bartok, for one thing. Um, just He always does really fun things with instruments. So um, I really just want you to tell me what you hear uh, when, when we listen to a little bit of this second movement. what you hear bassoons right is that a bassoon and you hear like different strings of course now what do you hear I mean these are the oboes are the string players they're playing pluck they're plucking they're plucking and, and happy Pizzicato is the word for that, when string players pluck the strings with their finger. I hear a lot of, like, I hear, like, the difference between a sprinter and a hurdler, mm. like, happening at the same time. <laughs> flutes happening just doing that and I like how it's like 
like it's it's Playful smooth and whimsical, yet then it's the Spanish word is puntiagudo, which means like um kind of pointy, but not pointy. It's like a salt in a baked good. And I've used that before. There's things that you don't think you hear, but if unless you're really paying attention, but that add an extra layer. Brass, throw some brass in. Yeah. What kind of brass? I mean, they sound like cornets, but they're not. They sound like they're, it's not a trombone, it's like some sort of trumpet. Mm-hmm. With mutes, maybe. And then, like, it's just really like um, mouse trappy strings. I'm <laughs> having. <laughs> 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 Bartok. Love it. His so glad we did that. Second movement uh, of the concerto for orchestra takes pairs of instruments and just passes around the orchestra. Starts with bassoons, then there's the oboes, flutes do it, clarinets do it, trumpets do it. And each pair, they play a different interval apart. So next time you listen to that, listen for that. Yeah. <laughs> but that's why it's fun to see, you know, what do you hear? Because you'll hear two bassoons play together, and then you hear two oboes play together, and you were getting those all. But you wonder if you listen to it depending on your mood. I imagine there are days where I only can speak for me, where I listen to music and it's very technical. Mm-hmm. And then there are days where I listen to music and it's like very energy driven. It's oh, exactly yeah. what I was speaking to about wine, where like sometimes you want to just talk about the energy and how it's making you feel, and other characteristics. And then, you know, there are days where you want to be really technical because that's what your mind needs to decipher or to categorize or to enjoy even. Um, so I'd be curious to listen to that same piece without you ask, you know, like oh, yeah. in a year yeah. on episode 100, let's say, <laughs> and just say, Jill, what do you hear? And mm-hmm. I wonder if I would go about it the same way or if I would do it in a way that's more... Oh, they're in this interval, or they're in that, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Because, or maybe I'd just be like, I don't hear anything because this wine is great. You are, you know, who knows? <laughs> who knows? So, well, uh, what a delightful conversation today, Jill Mott. Here's to the textural. To the textural. To scores and pours. Scores and pours. Thank you for listening to episode 21 of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. And we're on Instagram at scoresandpours. That's managed by Jill, and it's great. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scoresandpours. We would appreciate that very much. We're grateful for those who are already doing so. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc.